If you're like me, you care about getting the most from your workouts, which means wearing the finest performance gear. You know, fabric that dries quickly and has superior moisture wicking properties. Fabric so soft and comfortable, you could, well, curl up and sleep in it. Introducing Sheeks, spelled S-H-E-E-X, the world's first performance bedding line. Sheeks began when two former elite athletes and coaches had an aha moment, combining everything we love about quality performance fabric with everything we love about comfortable, irresistible bedding. Unlike traditional sheets that trap heat, sheets are breathable, so you aren't constantly waking up to throw off covers or out of blanket. So you sleep deeper, longer, and better. And sheets bedding looks as good as it feels. Colors and styles that can match any decor at a price that will pleasantly surprise you. And right now, you can try sheets for 30 nights risk-free. Just go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code twelve twelve and get forty dollars off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com promo code twelve twelve. Sleepcoolnow.com twelve twelve. This is hour number one of the World According to Zig podcast for this January seventh, two thousand and eighteen. My name is John Ziegler. I'm the host of this show where you can still get the truth about news, politics, media, sports, and culture from a true conservative perspective in this world turned upside down. Happy New Year to you. I hope you're surviving the uh, global warming that most of the uh, country has been experiencing to the start of this year. But, uh, boy, the news has certainly been hot, and we'll get to as much of it as we possibly can in this hour number one. In hour number two, we're going to be joined by an interesting guest, a guy I'm really looking forward to speaking to. He is the editor and publisher of Skeptic Magazine, best-selling author Michael Shermer, who's got a new book about the afterlife. And that's only part of why I've asked him on the program. Skeptic Magazine published a book review this week that caused quite a bit of controversy because they're the only media outlet, at least the legitimate one that I've seen, that has actually thoroughly reviewed Mark Pendergrast's book, The Most Hated Man in America, The Rush to Judgment Against Jerry Sandusky, which I am featured in. So I want to talk to him about that and an interesting disclaimer that he himself had to put on the very positive and uh, fascinating review of the book. So that's an hour number two. Hour number one of the news hour, as is usually the case, we are focused on Donald Trump, just as he likes it. This week, more so than even normal. You know, normally the first week of a year is a very slow news window. In fact, <laughs> I, I feel so stupid because I, as I've been teasing this um, national magazine article that I've been taking part in that's been proposed about the whole Penn State Paterno-Sandusky case, I at one point thought we were going to be publishing this week. Uh, and I thought that, you know, this week's edition coming out on Friday the 5th of January would be a really good place to be because <laughs> normally there's no news. You're coming off of the holidays and there's there's no backlog of stories to be told in the news media. And you might find a, a uh, you know, a soft window <laughs> Well, that was not the case this week, and largely in part because, obviously, the publisher of the uh, Michael Wolff book, 
Fire and Fury thought the same way I did. <laughs> they thought, okay, this would be a perfect time to fill a news void, and uh, boy, did they ever. And uh, clearly the, the theme of this week is uh, the, the madness of King Trump. That's King Donald, the madness of King Donald. Whether it's real, whether it's exaggerated, whether maybe it's being underestimated, <laughs> God forbid, that's really the theme. And I guess the best way to put this crazy week into perspective is that this week, think about this, folks, this week, the president of the United States of America went on Twitter and made a public pronouncement threatening nuclear war against a madman in North Korea, basically to show off how big his dick is. That's a fact. That happened. That happened on Tuesday. And it created, understandably, quite an uproar. By Thursday, it was completely forgotten. Completely forgotten that the President of the United States decided to make a public pronouncement to the world threatening nuclear war just to show Kim Jong-un how big his dick is. Now, I believe very strongly, and I, don't, I do not know whether or not this is a situation where there's a method to the madness or whether or not this is just dumb luck. I really don't know. Because I have said that I believe that Trump is not an intelligent individual, but I do believe that he has some level of genius at least when it comes to manipulating the news media. He's the best I've ever seen at it. Now, genius is, a, is an, you know, he himself will tell you he's a genius. He said yesterday he's a very stable genius. I don't believe that in, in most realms of life. But, you know, genius is a, is a very tough thing to define. You know, there's the old line between genius and insanity. And oftentimes genius can be misunderstood or, Really, what's luck and circumstance can be perceived wrongly as genius. But when it's happening as long as it has, there's no question that maybe as a savant, an idiot savant, Trump is a genius when it comes to media manipulation. And I'm not suggesting that this is all part of a plan, but Trump benefits enormously from his own chaos. Enormously from his own chaos. Because if the only thing that Trump did this week, and let's say, pretend the book didn't come out, if the only thing he did this week was put out the nuclear tweet, and that's all we were talking about, and it was just that issue, and the media was laser-focused on just that, it might have an impact, because that's the way the world works today. It's not what gets reported. As I always say, it's what gets repeated. And in this day and age, as distracted as we are, as fragmented as we are, it requires an awful lot of repeating to make an impact. I guarantee you, there's a huge percentage of the population, especially in the Trump cult, who don't even realize that Trump gave the nuclear tweet because there were so many other things that drowned it out. Similarly, with regard to the book, the President of the United States not only attacked 
a book, which is perfectly fine. You're allowed to do that, although a president normally would – a normal president would stay above the fray and just you know, not even give it attention. But that's not all Trump did with regard to the book. Trump had his lawyers issue a cease and desist letter. This is the president of the United States. The president of the United States. Cease and desist letter to a book in a country where the First Amendment to the Constitution guarantees that the government will not infringe upon freedom of speech. The president of the United States. Can you imagine, can you imagine if Barack Obama ever had a book written about him by a major publisher, by you know a guy who's had questions about his credibility, but is certainly a quote-unquote credible writer, if Barack Obama ever issued a cease and desist letter <laughs> to stop a book from being published, Fox News Channel would be on 24-7 Fox News Alert. The Constitution is being burned before our eyes. The country is going to hell. It's all over. Barack Obama must be removed from office. But I guarantee you that fewer people in this country, especially in the Trump cult, even know about the cease and desist letter than they know about the nuclear tweet. Again, because it got drowned out in all the other madness, in all the other insanity. Another example of something that happened this week that got almost no attention because it got drowned out by the nuclear tweet. And I'm sure that the people who wrote the op-ed thought this is going to be big news this week. (laughs) The people who run Fusion GPS, you know, the firm that uh, ended up commissioning the Christopher Steele dossier, the one that allegedly has the you know reference to the P, doesn't allegedly, it actually has a reference to a P-tape, as it's referred to, that Russia has of Trump with prostitutes in a Moscow hotel during the Miss Universe pageant in 2013. Well, those people, and you know, it's disgusting to me how people I used to have some respect for in the quote-unquote conservative, now state-run news media, who are just parroting talking points from Donald Trump and his minions, no matter how ludicrous. But the, the narrative now is that Fusion GPS was working for Hillary Clinton, and this was all about Hillary Clinton dirt. Well, Fusion GPS works for everybody, first of all. Number one, and number one, the original dossier was actually funded by a conservative news website that was back in the primaries looking for opposition research or dirt against Donald Trump. And there's absolutely zero evidence that their work was influenced at all by who was paying them. Now, I'm fully aware that who's paying is often important in understanding context. But there's no evidence at all that Steele knew who the hell he was working for, that GPS even told him. And there's no evidence that what he found and reported was politically motivated. But I realize that doesn't matter in the the world we now live in because it's all about muddying the waters and giving your own personal cult what they want to hear. But the Fusion GPS people put out an op-ed in the New York Times that I found to be exceedingly credible 
that debunked a lot of these claims about them and made some news by saying that they had found enormous amounts of evidence that Donald Trump had deep ties, financial ties, to Russia, which he has been denying all along here. Lie after lie after lie. And that's the thing that has really always bugged me about most, not about Trump in general, but but specifically with regard to the Russian investigation, why all the lies? And that's a big one. And so I'm sure that the, the Fusion GPS people thought, wow, this is going to be, we're going to be asked on all the major news shows and this is going to be big and people are going to be talking about this all week long. Uh-uh. Nothing. It was completely overwhelmed by the rest of the insanity. Now, there are those who believe that Trump knows this. Maybe Trump knew that the Fusion GPS op-ed was coming out and the book was coming out. And this is why he did, you know, what, what, what would you do if you were president and you wanted to make ways? Well, you might threaten nuclear war <laughs> and, and make it about your penis. That, that would give Trump maybe more credit than he deserves, but there's at least some logic to that. And so I wouldn't put that past him. But the reality is that all these other stories that frankly are, in my opinion, both more credible and more important and less ambiguous than a lot of what's in the Wolf book got totally lost this week. Because the Wolf book, Fire and Fury, is nuts. And that's really kind of the theme of the whole book, is that we have a person who, as I have said, from 2015, when his campaign first started, is uniquely, uniquely unqualified to be president of the United States. So I, I come at the Wolf book from that perspective that I see it in some ways as vindication, although I don't buy everything that's in the Wolf book. I don't think a lot of it is done well journalistically, and there's some parts of it that doesn't make a lot of sense, and some of it feels very exaggerated to me. But in its essence, it's 100% consistent with what my view of Donald Trump has always been. And that was not because uh, I didn't think he was going to win the nomination at first or I thought he was going to lose to Hillary. No, it's because I know his history. My own father has had fairly extensive and important dealings, business dealings with him back in the late 80s, early 90s. I met him very briefly, but had a what I thought was a illuminating conversation backstage at the Today Show back in early 2014. I feel like I know him as well as somebody as as I as well as I could for somebody who's never had extensive conversations with him. The guy is uniquely unqualified to do the job of president. Not to mention, I also believe that he's a closet liberal who will change on a dime based upon what his self-interest is. I'm very capable of changing to anything I want to change to. Yeah. So that, that, that's a second, my, that was always my secondary problem with Trump. You can't trust him because his self-interest changes and he will always do what he perceives, perceives to be in his self-interest today. Not tomorrow, not yesterday, today. But my primary concern has always been he is not 
qualified. And I'm not talking about qualified from the standpoint of he never held elected office or he's not knowledgeable enough, both of which happen to be true. I'm talking about temperamentally, psychologically, mentally, from a skill set standpoint. Maybe even more important than all that, from a priority perspective, when you're the president of the United States, your number one priority is what's best for the country. That's never been remotely in Donald Trump's mindset. Donald Trump's mindset is what's best for me, for me. And that's why you know, I took a lot of flack for saying, look, um, at the end of the 2016 campaign, before the Comey letter came out and it became clear this was going to be a very tight race, it seemed obvious to me at that point that Trump was going to lose. I, I felt like it was important that Trump lost big so that this cancer would be removed. And I actually urged people in, in swing states to vote for Hillary Clinton. And people were, oh, not evil Hillary. Well, yeah, look. I'm no fan of Hillary Clinton. My first uh, documentary film was an anti-Hillary Clinton film, for heaven's sakes. Uh, My record on the Clintons is very long and very credible uh, as being a a harsh critic. But for all of her problems, I think she was more qualified in the terms that I just used than Donald Trump. I also believe that she would have been a four-year president that would have done absolutely nothing and and in likelihood, and who knows for sure, but in likelihood, conservatism, the Republican Party in the country, would be a hell of a lot better off five years after that than we will be five years after Trump. And I, look, I, it's, it's odd for me because you know I'm 50 years old now. You know, in my mind, and I realize people live for a very long time now, but in my mind, my life is is close to being over. I mean. <laughs> We're heading down the home stretch here. So it's weird that me, that I, who, who doesn't even believe in an afterlife, uh, you know, and while I certainly care about what happens to my kids after I'm gone, here I'm the one worried about the future so much. It seems odd to me that no one else seems to care about the future. But I, I do, for whatever bizarre reason. I don't know why I do, but I do. doesn't make a lot of sense based upon the way people seem to look at the world these days. This idea that somehow... The Scalia replacement was the be-all, end-all of the world. Look, no question, Scalia's replacement was important, very important. And in retrospect, if Scalia doesn't die, I don't think there's any chance Trump wins. Because there was a, I don't know what the percentage is, but there was a big chunk of Trump voters for whom that was all that mattered, was replacing Scalia with a conservative. And so it appears as if Trump's done that. Congratulations. Although, according to the Wolf Book, he almost didn't, folks. That's not, that, that I believe. That, that, that revelation hasn't even been, to my knowledge, repudiated. That Trump wanted to rescind the Gorsuch nomination because he wanted Rudy Giuliani. That's how close we came to having Rudy Giuliani as a Supreme Court justice. Which would have been a catastrophic net loss in comparison to Anton and Scalia. Even though they're both Italian. That's about the only thing they share in common. So, by the way, in Trump's mind, that probably made a difference. Oh, I'll take one Italian and replace it with another Italian. <laughs> that's probably part of what was going on in Trump's nutty head. 
So anyway, I, I wrote three columns this week for uh, Mediate, which were at least uh, somewhat related to the Michael Wolf book. You can find them at freespeechbroadcasting.com. And the first one didn't deal necessarily that much with the content of the book because everyone was freaking out over all these little tidbits about how dumb Trump is. Everyone thinks he's an idiot. He's a child that, uh, you know, all these nutty things that are going on. And so, you know, my instincts are always to go away from the herd and look for a story that no one is really talking about. And I was interested in how Wolf allegedly got his quotes. And he says that he had extraordinary access to the White House, which Trump has denied. <laughs> um, and, you know, I don't know whether Wolf is waiting to drop a bomb on Trump, or maybe he didn't have the access that he claimed. He says he interviewed him for three hours, although... You know, you would think that would be taped, and you would think that that would be clear-cut at this point. When Wolf talks about that, I smell a little bit of deception. Like, I feel like part of his interview was before he was president, and that he might have had a conversation with him after he was president, and that that was not an interview, and so that it might, this might be a situation where both people are kind of telling the truth and both people are kind of lying. Now, Trump, with Trump saying he never spoke to Wolf, part, part of the problem is Trump may have forgotten. That, and I think that's a large part of what's going on here. Like, for instance, a lot of people focused on the idea that, oh, the book can't be true because Trump said, who's that in response to the name John Boehner? Now, how the hell could he not know who John Boehner is? And we have proof that he's referenced John Boehner many times in the past. Yeah, okay, that's consistent with something in the book being inaccurate. It's also consistent with something in the book being perfectly accurate because Trump doesn't remember that Trump totally blanked on who John Boehner was, which I also think is plausible because I, do, I don't think he's all there whether it's the beginnings of dementia or he's just not that bright or he doesn't care or he's overwhelmed. I mean, we've got to remember, this is a child. We've got a child in the White House who's now, you know, I have a five-year-old myself. On days when my five-year-old is overstimulated, forget about it. She doesn't know her own name. So on days when the president is overstimulated and that five-year-old brain, there's a very good chance he doesn't remember who John Boehner is. But anyway, what I found fascinating, and it's it's really remarkable, but I've not heard anybody else in the media talk about this, so I urge you to check out this this uh, column at, at freespeechbroadcasting.com. And I was hopeful that we would get an answer once Wolf started doing interviews, but of course, I have no faith in the news media. And sure enough, we have not gotten an answer. But here's the part, it's, it's absolutely amazing to me that no one has really raised this. In the book, and in fact, in the excerpts in the, the New York magazine, there are two episodes where Wolf claims to have direct, specific quotes from phone calls involving Trump. One as president-elect, one as president. One of those phone calls was with Rupert frickin' Murdoch. 
the guy who owns, among other things, Fox News Channel. Now, the Murdoch phone call got a lot of press because at the end of it, supposedly Murdoch hangs up, shrugs his shoulders and says, what a fucking idiot. Which, by the way, I believe. I believe that Murdoch would hang up the phone with Donald Trump and say, what a fucking idiot, because I think a lot of people have had that very same response. But from a journalist standpoint, there's no explanation for how Michael Wolff could possibly have direct, specific, very specific, with commas and repeating. This is, this is very much like he's got a transcript or a tape of both Trump and Murdoch in a phone call. How could you possibly do that? You can only, Wolf can only be at one place at a time, right? And he's written a book about Murdoch in the past, although it was not flattering. So there's there's no indication that he and Murdoch are buddy-buddy, although I guess it's possible that they communicate. But let's pretend that just by a miracle, Wolf is there with Murdoch when that phone call happens so that he can witness the hanging up, the shrugging of the shoulders, and saying, what a fucking idiot. Okay, it's possible. Possible. You'd think he'd say that. He didn't say that. So how does he get that information? But let's pretend that that's, that's the scenario. That doesn't explain how you could possibly, because it's not on speakerphone, right? First of all, you're not, you're not talking to the president on speakerphone, number one. Number two, if it is on speakerphone, Wolf will mention that. So there's no mention of speakerphone. So if he's there with Murdoch, how could he possibly have specific quotes from Trump on the other end of the phone line? It's not possible. Unless there's a tape. Or at least a transcript. Conversely, if he, by chance he's in the White House, and this is before Trump's you know denial, which I don't really take very seriously because Trump's a liar, but... Before the White House was pushing back on the idea that, you know, Wolf had carte blanche access to the whole White House, there was certainly the possibility that maybe he was in the Oval Office when the call came, when the call to Murdoch was made. So therefore, he could be jotting down what Trump said. But then how does he know what Murdoch said? And where's he getting the, he hung up, shrugged, and said, what a fucking idiot. That's not possible. So there's really... In my mind, unless unless I'm missing something, I'm perfectly open to an explanation here. We haven't gotten one because no one in the media is smart enough to ask Wolf this. The, 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 the only explanations I see are Wolf is either making this up, which he's been known to do, or, which my gut tends to, although you would think that Wolf would have said this by now, I think he's got tapes and or a transcript of a phone call. Because there's, you know, having done a lot of reporting myself in this realm, it is not possible to get the specificity of quote when you're jotting stuff down, even if you happen to be there, when a fast talker like Trump is on the phone. It's not possible. And you can't get both ends of it. But there's a second episode also involving a phone call. This one with, I found this fascinating. With, I believe Wolf refers to it as a um, 
less than an acquaintance. I forget the phrase he uses, but it's not even an acquaintance. Like a, like a cat, I think he says casual acquaintance who Trump called unsolicited a month into his presidency. Now think about that for just a second. The president of the United States, a month into his presidency, after promising the world, everybody, is calling casual acquaintances unannounced. <laughs> that alone is crazy. All right. But, but Wolf writes six paragraphs, six paragraphs about this phone call. Now that's with, with a lot of specific quotes. All right. Now, how in the world do you get six paragraphs involving quotes of a phone call that you weren't listening in on that, again, we have no reason to believe he was in the Oval Office when the call occurred? Because this one's while Trump is president. So right away, you're like, okay, how the fuck did this happen? With, again, no explanation, although there's a lot of specifics. But then Wolf does something fascinating that to me was a real tell, which would have, in a rational world, immediately required everyone in the media to ask Wolf about it. In this, there's a one-line seventh paragraph about this phone call. Very short line. Wolf simply writes, the phone call lasted 26 minutes. 26 minutes. Now, I read that and like, holy shit, he's got tapes. Because, think about it, folks. There is no way to know to that certitude and that specificity how long a phone call is unless you've got a tape. Because in a rational world, you would estimate it. And the, the use of the, the number six... If he says 25 or about 25 or between 20 and 30, that I buy because that's something that the person who was on the call would immediately would know. Oh, the call lasted 20 or 30 minutes. So he talks to this casual acquaintance. How long was the phone call? I don't know, 20, 30 minutes. That's as close as you're going to get. But 26 minutes is a totally different ballgame. Not 25, not 30, 26. To me, Wolf was bragging I've got tapes without saying I've got tapes. Now, there has been reporting that there are tapes, but I've not heard anything about taping of phone calls. And how would that happen with the President of the United States? That's a whole another can of worms here. So anyway, check that column out because I'm skeptical of some of the reporting that Wolf has done, but I'm more frustrated, actually, by the fact that the rest of the media hasn't gotten to the bottom of this, because these are fairly simple questions. Do you have tape phone calls, Michael Wolf? He has said that he has tapes and notes, but he's not said he has tape phone calls. Now, of course, there could be the issue of legality. He could have, he could theoretically have taped people illegally or have access to illegally acquired tapes. But this, this is important to understanding what's really going on here. Now, the, the second uh, column that I wrote about uh, this book also was not directly related to the content, but it was about the uh, political death of Steve Bannon. 
And this one is pretty personal for me because, um, you know, as you know, Steve Bannon took over Breitbart for Andrew Breitbart. Andrew Breitbart and I were very close for several years before we had a falling out about a year and a half or two years before his death, maybe not even that long, about a year and a half uh, before his death, a falling out that I always presumed we would have time to rectify but never did because he died very suddenly. And in, in my view, Steve Bannon is a scumbag for a lot of reasons, but one of the which is that he's tried to take credit for making Breitbart what it is when he's done vague, basically nothing. I mean, he took what Andrew Breitbart did, and, and what's he most well-known for? Hiring Milo Yiannopoulos, which turned out to be a complete disaster. And also, by the way, destroying whatever journalistic credibility Breitbart had. So congratulations, Steve Bannon. That's what you're most well-known for there. Now, yes, he's gotten credit for electing Donald Trump president of the United States, which, you know, normally if you got credit for electing a president, that would be a feather, rather large feather in your cap. This one, I'm not so sure. I'm also not so sure he really did that, although he does deserve credit from a political standpoint for telling Trump after the Access Hollywood tape came out that he was still going to win, and he devised that very dastardly plan, which turned out to be very effective, of counterattacking with the Clinton accusers. So I do think he deserves some credit for, at the very least, helping Trump survive that, what should have been a, a career-ending, campaign-ending storm. But, of course, with a lot of people with massive egos, you know, one success like that goes to their head, and they think that they're they're the guy. They think they're the reason all this happened, and they think everybody else understands that and respects that, and will honor that, and will be loyal to that. And that's where Steve Bannon really, 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 really miscalculated. And I've seen this happen time and time again, almost always with men, usually in the media, often in politics sometimes in sports, but guys who think they're very accomplished, maybe even sometimes are actually very accomplished, have massive egos. They think that what they've done is because of their own awesomeness. And they also think that whatever platform they have, whatever job they have, whatever position they're in, is really only incidental to their greatness. And that the people kissing their asses are going to keep kissing their asses because of their own awesomeness. That people around them understand how great they are. And that therefore it doesn't matter whether or not they're still the chief political strategist for the president. Because people still understand, wow, Steve Bannon is awesome and we owe him a debt of gratitude for electing Trump. And he's a genius and... We remain loyal to him because we believe in whatever the hell he believes in, this alt-right bullcrap, whatever the hell that is. Well, that never turns out to be true, no matter who you are. People are not loyal to people, especially in this day and age. The definition of loyalty is not what you've done for me in the past, as, as crass as that sometimes could be. It's what do I think you're likely to be able to do for me in the future. That's what loyalty is based on today. And it's amazing to me that someone like Steve Bannon, an alleged political genius, doesn't understand that. But he clearly doesn't. And after he coerced Trump into re-endorsing Roy Moore after he was accused credibly of being a child molester and that blew up in his face and they lost Alabama, 
in my view, uh, any political capital that Steve Bannon had with Donald Trump was over. It's done. The election victory was erased because in Trump's mind, that's the past. And by the way, in Trump's mind, he's the reason why they won, not Steve Bannon. So, so Bannon, if he had any political capital with Trump at that point, it was over. But Trump, I think, was still at least willing to let Bannon run Breitbart and pretend to have access to the White House and maybe do his bidding from time to time because he might have been still useful. But when the Wolf book comes out and Bannon is quoted saying all these nasty things about Trump's family and saying some things that don't really make a lot of sense based upon Bannon's own past comments about the Russia investigation, then it's over. Because then Bannon goes from someone who can still be tolerated but has no real political capital to someone who must be destroyed. And Trump goes on a search and destroy mission on Steve Bannon. And I have to tell you, at least part of me enjoys it. Uh, it got so bad that yesterday uh, Trump tweeted, I think he tweeted, it's hard to remember what, you, what he tweeted and what he said, but he, he, he said, I think, yes, this, this, was, this was a tweet, <laughs> that Bannon actually cried when Trump fired him. <laughs> and he called, starts calling him Sloppy Steve, <laughs> which isn't a bad nickname, not bad. You know, just what, what the fuck is going on? What, what 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 world are we living in here? But I digress. The point the point here is that Trump now needs Bannon destroyed, and we saw that again today on Sunday when Stephen Miller drives the knife right into Bannon's back on on CNN with Jake Tapper. You know, Stephen Miller, a guy from here in Southern California, who was very close to Bannon and the whole Breitbart brigade, <laughs> just trashes Steve Bannon. Why? Well, because his boss wants him to. This is a test of his loyalty. He was put on television. I mean, this is America we're talking about. Not a, allegedly, not a fascist state, not a totalitarian regime where, you know, people who work for the government are put on television and forced to prove their loyalty to the king. But that's what's happening. And I don't like Steve Miller, but that's what Miller did today on CNN. He went on television. He backstabbed a friend. He lied about Bannon's past history with the campaign and with the, with the administration. And he proved his loyalty to Trump. Tapper even basically called him out on that saying that you're here for an audience of one, referencing the President of the United States, the king. You have pleased the king, now get off my air. That's effectively what Jake Tapper told Stephen Miller. But Bannon is in big trouble because he miscalculated how loyal people would be to him. And, you know, in the column that I write, again, you can find it at freespeechbroadcasting.com, I basically predict that Bannon's going to be gone from Breitbart. Now, there were a lot of rumors on Thursday that that was going to happen imminently. I don't know how long it's going to take. But I it, I do uh, talk about the reasons why Breitbart's going to have to get rid of him. And I think Miller's appearance today makes this even more clear. Because now everybody in Trump's spear is going to associate Breitbart with Bannon. And therefore, as long as Bannon is dead, and I don't see how he comes back to life, 
then Breitbart is dead. And we've already seen this with Rush Limbaugh. He's trashed Bannon. Sean Hannity, for some reason, is, as usual, slow on the uptick to figure out what's going on here. He's kind of tried to play a little bit of Switzerland. But, but Hannity, my guess, will probably start bashing Bannon to prove his loyalty to Trump. But Hannity's not that important here. He's somewhat important because, you know, without Fox News Channel, Breitbart can't be a powerhouse. But without Matt Drudge, Breitbart really can't be a powerhouse. And Matt Drudge made it exceedingly clear, exceedingly clear that he's done with Breitbart as long as Bannon is its head. And he even tweeted that he believed that Breitbart was going to go into a new direction, even referencing their CEO and the widow of Andrew Breitbart, Susie Breitbart. Now, that's important, not just because Andrew Breitbart worked for Matt Drudge for 10 years, but Matt Drudge still basically runs the conservative media when it comes to traffic on the Internet. He's the traffic cop. He's the assignment editor. And if he freezes out Breitbart, which, frankly, he's been doing a lot of in recent time, but if he freezes out Breitbart from having any links on Drudge, which I know Matt Trudge has done in the past. In fact, he did it to Andrew on multiple occasions. I know for a fact because it drove Andrew crazy and, in fact, even impacted me. One of these times happened when my movie, Media Malpractice, How Obama Got Elected, came out in 2009. And so I got screwed in the crossfire where whenever Matt thought that Andrew Breitbart was getting a little too big for his britches, guess what he would do? He would cut off any links to Breitbart.com, and that's where Andrew was getting all his traffic from, was links on Drudge. At one point, he even cut Andrew out of even access to the Drudge Report website, which really freaked Andrew out. And Andrew, of course, would then get right back in line and do whatever Matt wanted to do, and he would lower his profile, what have you. That's the way Matt runs his business, which is the greatest business model in the history of the Internet, by the way. I mean, his profit margins are insane. But Matt understands how this game works, and he understands that he's in the position of power, and he uses that leverage. So if he cuts off Breitbart and the whole Trump world is cutting off Bannon and Breitbart gets suffocated, they're going to cry uncle because Bannon's not that important to them. I don't know what Bannon's uh, legal deal is my my fear for andrew and his his legacy has already been toasted by this whole trump insanity and andrew never would have supported trump in my view unless maybe the only the only way andrew would have supported trump was after he won the nomination and it was a supposed binary choice between hillary and and trump andrew probably would have thought financially i have no choice but to get on the trump train that's the way andrew would have worked. But prior to Trump winning the nomination, I believe that Andrew Breitbart would have been fighting hard against Trump being the nominee. And without Breitbart in Trump's corner, I think that would have made it more difficult for Trump. Not necessarily saying it would have been decisive, but it would have made it more difficult. Certainly would have been more interesting. But my fear here is that if they do get rid of Bannon, and probably the only reason they haven't so far, this is just a guess on my part, is that they're fearful of some sort of a massive legal battle with Bannon because Bannon's got enough money. He's going to, and he's, he's not, he's not going to go down without a fight. 
So if they get rid of him, he's probably going to sue. There's also, by the way, logistical problems. My understanding is Bannon lives in a Breitbart-owned townhouse. So uh, how do you work that out? <laughs> how, do you, how do you extricate? I mean, this is a literal divorce if this happens, and this could be brutal in a lot of ways. But it's inevitable now because unless somehow Trump changes his tune, and I don't know if there's a way for Bannon to make that happen. I mean, he's going to have to grovel big. He's going to have to really grovel big, which can work with Trump. Let's be clear. Trump likes groveling. Uh, but unless that happens, I think that Bannon has probably gone from Breitbart. And if he's gone from Breitbart, then he's it's over. It's toast. I mean, he'll still, you know, he'll be on television in some ways, I guess, from time to time. But he's as a political force, uh, it's over for Bannon, which, by the way, is good. It's good for Trump, I believe. And that's the, the third column I wrote that was related to the book, which is I actually think that the Michael Wolf book, while it's got some negative elements to it, there will be some repercussions for to Trump for this, that by and large, the pluses outweigh the negatives. And you're probably like, what? How could this be good for Trump? Well, first of all, folks, we live in an upside-down world, so you can almost always, almost always presume that whatever the result is going to be is going to be the opposite of what rationality would dictate that it would be, especially when Trump is involved. But the argument I make, which you can, again, see it at freespeechbroadcasting.com, the argument I make is, yeah, there's some negatives here, um, but think about the positives. One of the major positives here is that now that these wolf allegations are out there and the media has had their collective orgasm over them, where do you possibly go from here? What can possibly be said about Donald Trump at this point that would be seen as moving the needle, as getting people's attention, as making people go, holy crap, what? It's nearly impossible. It's, you know, you, you, there, you know, you can only go so high, right? This one, this book goes. These go to 11. Yeah, this book went to 11 out of 10. <laughs> so where do you, there's no place to go. And I've already seen it in some of the coverage. Friday night, I was watching CNN, and they were trying to pretend that this New York Times revelation that Trump had pressured uh, Jeff Sessions not to recuse himself from the Russia investigation, which is, you know, in a normal presidency would be important. Uh, and they're trying to pretend that this is a big deal. And, oh, my gosh. And I'm like, are you kidding me? This is boring. This, this, is, this is a non-story. I, it felt like uh, watching a guy, you know, um, trying to pretend to his wife of 25 years that he's excited about the new dress that she bought. <laughs> he doesn't give a shit. This is old hat. Whatever. I don't care. There's, there's nothing stimulating about this. We've all been so desensitized now that it's going to take something in, you know, just beyond comprehension for us to get outraged. So the desensitization of the majority of the public has taken full effect, which I've been predicting for a long time would be to Trump's advantage, that we would all become desensitized to insanity. And conversely, the 35% or so that make up his base support, they're not going to read the Wolf book. There's not going to be, 
one person who is a big Trump fan who is going to spend money to buy the Wolf book, read the Wolf book, believe it, and go, damn, I got duped. Man, I feel like a fool. Man, what an idiot I am. Gosh. Idiots! Imbeciles! That's not going to happen. People don't do that. As I always say, it's far, far, far easier to be duped than to be proven that you have been duped. and uh, Or to be convinced that you've been duped. And that, so no one's going to do that. Because there's no need. There's no value in finding out the truth anymore. It's whatever you makes you feel good. That's whatever it is. Find the truth that makes you feel good. That's why stay in your safe place on Fox News Channel, state-run television. That's what Trump does. My feel-good place, my safe place. So nobody is going to change their mind in the negative direction, really, about Trump. Now, there might be some people in the middle who have been wavering who finally go, oh, this is just too much. This is just too much. It's just too much insanity. That's possible. But that's they're on the fringes. And frankly, I think Alabama's result showed that most of those people are already gone. So there'll be very little negative impact. And I, I think that there's some positives. The desensitization, if this means the end of Bannon, I think that's a good thing. And so... Um, you know, in a weird way, I think this could all work out pretty well, at least in the short run, for Donald Trump. And one of the things that Trump understands, and this goes back to maybe his genius or whatever, Trump, and this is, I also think, why he tweets his insanity. I think Trump understands the power of television exceedingly well, intrinsically. And let's face it. <laughs> As long as he's able to perform like he did yesterday, and yesterday's press conference was nuts by any other standard of presidency, but by Trump's standard, I mean, you know, he didn't appear to be completely out of it. So Trump understands that unless there's video of him being exposed as having lost his mental faculties or acting completely crazy, that no one who's already in support of him is going to believe it. Because what's written down on paper can always be made up. Sources can always be made up. Quotes can always be made up. But television is real. So unless there's a moment where his cult sees it for themselves in a clear-cut way, kind of the, the aha moment of the Wizard of Oz where the curtain opens and the wizard is found to be the old man just pulling some levers... Unless that moment happens, nothing is going to change. And Trump is really good at avoiding that moment because he, he doesn't do one-on-one -on -one interviews with people that aren't from Fox News Channel or friendly. And he doesn't do uh, press conferences alone since February of last year. So his people have been pretty good at keeping him in situations where we can't have that Wizard of Oz moment. And one other thing on the desensitization, the perfect proof of the desensitization is this Gorilla Channel thing. If you're on Twitter, you know what I'm talking about. The Gorilla Channel, someone wrote a spoof or a parody of Michael Wolff's book pretending that Trump is obsessed with the Gorilla Channel that doesn't even exist, that he had the White House install into his, <laughs> into his room so he could watch gorillas fighting 17 hours a day. People really believed that, and it was hilarious. 
because it smacked of being possible, even as absurd as it was. But once the Gorilla Channel has trended on Twitter, number one or two for a full day, where do you go from that? How do you even how, how do comedians parody or joke about him now? It's almost impossible. So there's there's a lot of positives in this, as insane as that is, for Donald Trump. One other column I wrote uh, dealt with uh, what's going on at the Today Show. Coda Copby is now officially replaced Matt Lauer. And I find this significant because I think it proves my – or doesn't prove, but it certainly goes to my theory about how and why Matt Lauer got axed. And it was not because um, actual allegations of sexual abuse. It was because he did not – uh, technically disclose an affair he was having consensually with a co-worker back in 2014, and then NBC needed a scalp in the post-Harvey Weinstein era, and they're saving a boatload of money, a boatload of money. And Coda Copy being the person who replaced him is proof of how much money they're saving. And it's also a sad day for me because, you know, Matt Lauer, I was on the Today Show three times with him, you know, disagree with him on a lot of things. He did me wrong in some ways. He is a tremendous interviewer, by far the most formidable interviewer I have ever gone up against. And I've told him this. It's not close. And now there's nobody in morning television who can do a decent interview. And Savannah Guthrie, who's replacing him as the heavy news interviewer, proved that this week with her interview with Michael Wolff. First of all, it was way too short. And second of all, we learned nothing. She asked no good questions, and she was giggling half the time. So it's just another another step in this uh, death of news where everything is now cotton candy. Uh, one other thing I want to mention in hour number one, obviously on Monday the college football championship game between Alabama and Georgia is being played. Should be a really good game. My guess is Alabama will win, although uh, I can't see either team blowing the other out which hopefully will be good. Uh, this year's uh, bowl situation, I think, has once again proven the absurdity of the system, not necessarily the Final Four, but, my God, there's just too many damn college bowls, and they got to get rid of them because it's destroying college football. And part of what's happening now is on a regular basis, star players, not even star players, like medium star players, aren't even playing in the college bowls because they're afraid of getting hurt before the NFL draft. And this is really disgusting. And one of those who did so, in frankly, a rather deceptive way, was UCLA's quarterback, Josh Rosen. Now, the reason I'm mentioning this is, some of you may know that, <laughs> typical of my very bizarre life, I was Josh Rosen's head football coach in eighth grade when he was at Chadwick Academy in Palos Verdes, California. And um, so I know Josh, having coached him and been his offense coordinator and head coach. And I've been rooting hard for him, obviously, since back then through his high school days and college days at UCLA. And my, my wife went to UCLA. And But the way he handled this whole thing felt very contrived to me, that he's you know, pretending that he wanted to play in the bowl game and suited up, but the doctors prevented him because he had a concussion a month ago, which didn't make any damn sense to me. And, of course, then he turns pro, which proves the charade, right? This was, this was a charade. He was always going to turn pro. He didn't want to get hurt. And uh, it's really astonishing to me that Josh is considered to be maybe the number one pick in the draft, certainly one of the top five picks in the draft. Because, uh, well, again, I was rooting hard for Josh as a former student and, and player of mine. 
and and there's a lot of things that are special about him. I, I don't see it. I, I mean, if you look at his results in two and a half years at UCLA, they've beaten nobody. Nobody. Uh, they lost a lot of games to a lot of bad teams. Not all Josh's fault. But uh, he was injury prone. Only played two and a half years. A lot of hype. Cover of Sports Illustrated. All that. He's exciting to watch. And but frankly, and I realize eighth grade is a long time ago. But I'm telling you, folks, the guy I see quarterback at UCLA is the same kid I got in eighth grade, who was fun, talented, unpredictable. Uh, may not run the right play, may not show up for the game, thought a lot of him, way more of himself than probably was deserved. It comes from a you know very, very uh, wealthy background with two very smart parents, but definitely a, you know, a soft Manhattan Beach, rich kid background uh, who takes a lot more chances than sometimes you know, writes checks that his arm can't cash. I would strongly urge anybody, not that anyone's listening to me, anyone at the top of the NFL draft considering drafting Josh Rosen to not do it. Not because I don't think he can play in the NFL, just because there's so much pressure that is associated with being a top draft pick as a quarterback. I mean, if he's picked by New York, the New York Giants and pick number two, I, I think New York will eat Josh Rosen up and swallow him and spit him out. Especially if things go badly. Now, granted, you know he could sit behind Eli Manning for at least a year, which would be good. But I, I just think there's a lot of risk with Josh Rosen, and there hasn't been a lot that's been proven. Yes, there's a lot to like. He's exciting, fun, a playmaker, and when it works, it's awesome. <laughs> Believe me, when I was coaching him, when I worked, it worked. It was like, wow, that was awesome. But you never knew what was going to happen the next play, and uh, and that mentality still seems to be there. Interestingly, there's a decent chance the new the new head coach of the New York Giants is going to be Jim Schwartz, who currently works for the Eagles. The reason why that's somewhat relevant is because I went to school with Jim Schwartz at Georgetown University, and my college roommate is very good friends with him. So it is possible that Jim Schwartz, if he gets the job, may be getting a text message about Josh Rosen and the dangers of drafting him. Only in my bizarre life. All right, that's hour number one of the World According to Zig podcast. Hour number two with the publisher of Skeptic Magazine, best-selling author Michael Sherman com- Shermer coming up. Make sure you pay attention to that, and I'm sure it's going to be awesome. Uh, and as always, I ask only two things of you. Number one, please share this podcast via social media. This is our next-to-last scheduled podcast in a studio after next week. Uh, we'll still be doing podcasts, but they're going to be sporadic, and they're not going to be nearly as often. So uh, please share this via Facebook, Twitter, social media, so word of mouth, what have you. And number two, do yourself a favor, and if you're one of those people who sleeps, and when you sleep, you use sheets, please pay attention to this important message. My name's John Ziegler. Our website is freespeechbroadcasting.com. Coffee? Oh, thanks. How did you sleep? Ugh, like a baby. I don't want to get out of bed, ever. These sheets are mm, incredibly soft. What did you say they're called again? Performance bedding by Sheiks. <laughs> performance bedding? <laughs> yeah. They're made from super high-tech performance fabric. They're incredibly breathable, so you're not waking up at night throwing covers off and then an hour later throwing them back on. Huh. No wonder I slept so good. Since I started using Sheiks, I sleep like a baby. No more sweaty nights for me. No? Well. <laughs> well, I like them because they're soft. They feel like, mm, silk. Performance fabric, huh? Maybe we should... Oh, I don't know. Try them out again. <laughs> <laughs> Comfort and performance for better sleep. That's Sheik's. 
S-H-E-E-X. Sheiks. Try Sheiks for 30 nights risk-free. Go to sleepcoolnow.com. Use promo code 1212 and get $40 off any sheet set. That's sleepcoolnow.com, promo code 1212. Sleepcoolnow.com, 1212.